Well, I was born a child of the 60s. Some of you might think, wow, that's amazing. He doesn't look anything like he could have been born all that time ago. Okay. Uh, others of you might think, wow, I wish I was a child of the 60s. I don't remember it, to be perfectly honest, born in 65. It kind of all happened. Everybody looks back and romanticizes a period of time that I can't even remember. But it was a pretty amazing era. It was supposed to be a magical era. Uh, we had incredible changes when it comes to music. We brought uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. We, that's me saying I'm a child of the 60s. We brought the Beatles to this world. Uh, and the Rolling Stones, 1967, the Summer of Love. Incredible and amazing historical events. 1963, assassination of J.F. Kennedy in Dallas. Just a, a, a world-changing event, and many people have written about the implications, what's happened as a result of that, and the things that have gone on since that time. 1969, Apollo 11, we put a man on the moon. Incredible changes that have going, been going on. Do you know there's some even more amazing things that you might not know about? The computer mouse, first developed and used in 1960s. The cash machine, probably some of you are going to pass by the cash machine on your way home, uh, pick up some cash for your takeaway on, in this evening, which is kind of a normal sun, Sunday evening thing for some people. AstroTurf. 1960s, felt-tip pens, 1960s. Amazing things have gone on. Why is this important? Why am I mentioning the 1960s? Why is it relevant? The reason that I mention it is because it's 50-odd years ago, and the 1960s to today are the same period of time between the birth of Jesus and the writing of this letter that we now read. I find that amazing. It's not long. It really is not a long time. AD 50-ish was some time when we expect that this letter was written. The interesting thing and amazing thing that I find about that is that I know that we hold all sorts of those things in the 1960s clear in our minds because many of us were there we know what happened. We know what went on. 1966, we won the World Cup, did England. I was one. I remember it. You th what? I remember 1966, asleep in my pram, and my dad erupted when England scored. And I remember that moment. That's, that is my earliest memory. Then I don't remember anything for another, I don't know, 10 years or whatever it is. There's all sorts of things that kind of go, but little things. We remember and we know and we bear testimony to those things. We know that they really happened because they're close enough to us that there's all sorts of people that can give, give a really clear account of what went on. 50-odd years. That's the time scale between Jesus born and this letter written to a group of Christians in a, a city called Colossae. I find that interesting. But more interesting in this passage is the dramatic 
and radical transformation that has taken place in those 50 years in how Jesus of Nazareth is described. Jesus of Nazareth, born 50 years earlier, is now described as no less than God himself. 20 years after his death. In other words, the, writers of the, the writer of this letter, the recipients of this letter, the people who copied this letter repeatedly so that it became part of our historical heritage in that very early period of the Christian faith, they were recounting it and they were holding it and they were remembering it because they remembered Jesus of Nazareth as an individual. But he is now described as God himself. That is a dramatic and radical and incredible change. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension were the events which transformed a life which was interesting to a life that was remarkable. In fact, a life unlike any other life in the whole of human history. That's what has gone on. That's what Paul is saying to these Christians. Now, as we look at this, we, we jump quickly to verse 19. We get a really clear statement. I, I mentioned we were doing Christianity Explored Monday, last Monday, I think it was. Uh, and one of the things that we observed is that many people would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You read, the, you read the Gospels and we don't see Jesus saying in clear words, I am God. However, what we see in the language of the day, he uses words, he says things, and he claims things that undoubtedly, for the people of the day, in no uncertain terms, they knew that he was claiming to be no less than God himself. A man who needed to be healed. He says to him, having been dropped down through the roof and placed in front of Jesus uh, and all of the people saying, this is where Jesus is going to heal him with some words, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> that, 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 was a, that was a crazy statement in human terms for two reasons. One, because it seemed as though the obvious thing that the man needed was to be healed. But Jesus knew something more important than healing was that he needed for his sins to be forgiven. And that's what, he, that's what he focused in on. And then when the religious elite were outraged and called him a blasphemer because he was claiming to be God, who can, who can forgive sins? Only God himself. He turns around and he says, well, which is the easiest, for me to forgive his sins or for him to rise up and walk? And he says to him, get up and walk, and he takes his bed with him. So in the day, Jesus said things and claimed things, either in word or in, or in action, which undoubtedly said that he claimed to be God. Now, 20 years after his death, he is now being written about as though those claims are absolutely true. And so we have in this little short eight verses... We have three participants. 
We have the Colossian Church, a group of people from all sorts of backgrounds, diverse group of people, uh, if you like, Hellenistic Jews and Greeks and probably Jewish heritage, uh, all sorts of people coming together in this fledgling church, uh, and they had become believers in this Jesus. That was a risky thing in the day for them to do that. It was becoming problematic. We know that it was problematic because the other participant is the writer of this letter, Paul, writing this letter to the Colossian church from a prison cell because he was a believer in Jesus. So those who were receiving the letter were potentially under threat because they were gathering as believers in Jesus. The one who was writing the letter was undoubtedly experiencing the implications of claiming to believe that Jesus was no less than God Himself because He was imprisoned because of that claim. And then there's a third participant, and it's you and me. Because in reading this, as we engage with this text, and as we come together and we think about it and we, we engage with what is being said, we become participants in this. That's what, that's what engaging with text does to us. We don't sit back and just kind of, in a dispassionate way, just observe it. As soon as we engage in this way, we have become in some way a part of it. We have started to engage in what these claims are. We stand now alongside the Colossian church, and we say, here's what is being said. Let's engage with what is being said. For those of us who are part of this church, let's engage with what is being said, and let's be really clear in our minds that this is the driving force for everything that we're concerned about doing. It is really easy to get distracted, sidetracked onto the important thing is other things. Now, things like, I don't know, walls and carpets and, and chairs and, and paint colors and, and what we do with various groups and, and all of that sort of stuff. We, we should care nothing about those things apart from that they are pointing to this that should be central. And it's that Jesus Christ is supreme in everything. First thing we see, let's have a look at verse 15 to 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Here's the first thing that we see. Jesus Christ is the purpose of creation. That, that, is, that is a disorientating statement. Back end of the 1960s, when was it? 1960, well, it was 1966. The classic singer, Scylla Black, sings the song Alfie from the movie Alfie. What's it all about, Alfie? What a great line that is. If you read the words on it, Burt Bacharach's song, 
Actually, the words in that song are really fascinating. What's it all about? I guess 50-odd years later, we're still asking that question. We're still asking, what is this all about? What is this world, this life, this existence? We're asking it on a world basis. We're asking it on a national basis. But the reality is that many of us have been asking it on a very, very personal basis. It's not a kind of an intellectual kind of meandering, what's life all about? It's a tears and pain and worry and fear and joy experience. What is this life all about? What is it all about? And Paul makes this dramatic claim. Everything is made for him. That's you and me. We are made for him. Until we get our heads around this claim of the Bible, this claim of the message of the gospel, this good news, until we get our heads around that this is the ultimate purpose statement of the whole of human existence, we will continue to struggle with our identity and purpose. We will continue to find it hard. We will continue to get, round, get wrapped up going round and round and round and round in circles. What's it all about? And yet the, remaining, the, remind, the, the amazing thing is that when we come to terms with the, the idea that Jesus is central and that it is all about Him, we absolutely can find our identity and our purpose. We can find our meaning. We can find our worth. We can find the reality. Everything that is going on, everything that has been created, every, every trajectory of human history, from the very beginning in its perfection to the reestablishment of Jesus as the visible, supreme King and ruler, everything is driving towards that understanding. That he's supreme. I've mentioned it on countless occasions. This is not a new human experience. Augustine wrote about it in the 6th century. We will all be restless until we find our rest in God. That's been described in all sorts of different ways, trying to get the idea across. Some have said we can have a hole in our hearts which is God-shaped. There, there are so many different descriptions. It's all trying to put language around the idea that we are missing the vital element of our self-satisfaction when we don't understand that our satisfaction is in Jesus. That, that's, what, why is that? Because he's eternally happy. He's, jo he's, he, he's joyful. He's triumphant. He's victorious. He's king. And it's all about him. So the first thing that we see is that 
The whole of the purpose of creation is in Jesus. The second thing that we see is that God is at the head of the church. God is at the head of the church. And I'm using that word God in very deliberate (laughs) language. It's Jesus Christ is at the head of the church. But in claiming for him to be a God, he is God in Christ at the head of the church. Look at what it says. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. First thing I want you to just notice in this is that he is the active head of the church. See what it says? He is the head of the church, of the body, the church. It doesn't say he was. It doesn't say he will be. It says he is. Because it is absolutely rooted in the, in the conviction that Paul had that Jesus had not just died and was buried, but that he had risen as well and ascended. Not for a a kind of magic trick or some kind of supernatural display that God had decided to show to humanity, but for a reason. He becomes the head of the church. That's his role now. How does he achieve that headship? And what is the nature of his headship? His headship, in one sense, is in, in, is in his humanity. Look at what it says. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? It simply means this, that if resurrection is a true thing, then he's the first to do it. And all of us who believe in that are just followers of that. We follow on from what He has already done. And so He is supreme because He leads the way and He takes humanity into the heavenly realm, into the the eternal dimension. Do you know what? I haven't got a clue how that works. I I don't understand that. I'm really glad that I don't understand that kind of thing. Because it means that I am still in awe of this Jesus. It's just beyond me. But he's making a claim which is relevant to you and me. Which is, he's supreme. And in resurrection, we follow him. And that's the church. He's head of the church, not in some kind of structural management organization of this great, you know, worldwide thing, which is the church. He describes it as a body. He is the head of the body. It's organic. It's real. It's living. We are interconnected in a way which we can't see. We are, we are over all of time somehow connected together and Jesus is the head. And what we see is that He is that because of His unifying and redeeming work. See what it says there. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him 
and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He is, he is the reconciling one. Not, not, not anybody else. He is the reconciling one. It, it's not even that He says that He's the reconciling one, and therefore everybody says, yeah, we all agree with that, and it's words that are out there. He is the reconciling one because of what He does. Look at what it carries on to say. By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. How does He reconcile? How does Jesus reconcile? He reconciles by His blood which was shed on the cross. He doesn't reconcile by standing apart and saying, you're reconciled. He says, you are reconciled by doing, by engaging. That's remarkable. It is why a Roman execution device has become the symbol of life and hope. Do you see the paradox, the irreconcilable reconciliation. A Roman torture device becomes a symbol of hope because it is the cross which is the means by which the reconciliation takes place. Do you know what? If we wanted a kind of strap line for the next series, Royal Blood, that's what it's all about. The cross it's the reconciling mechanism for you and me. How do we be reconciled? How can we possibly come into relationship and be reconciled with God again? The cross. That's it. I, I don't know whether there was another way, but I know that God has said this is the way. This is the way that I have declared as the only way in which you can be reconciled to me. The cross. No other way. It's the cross that does it. If Jesus hadn't done what He did, then we could not be reconciled with God. That's how big a deal it is. That's why it's... That's why it's everything. That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, I decided that the only thing I would declare is Christ and Him crucified. It's like it's, like, it's, it's right at the center. But of course, the, re- the cross is nothing. The cross is absolutely meaningless. Unless we also believe that He rose again and ascended. I, I don't even, wouldn't even begin to hazard a guess at how many people were crucified during Roman, the Roman Empire. It, w- it would be a countless number. Was it Hadrian who, who lined up crucifi- crucified victims for five miles on his journey back into the city of Rome along the roadside? I, I think it might have been Hadrian. I remember reading somebody. It's kind of his triumph, his procession back into the, into the center of Rome, his victorious march was with crucified victims for five miles. That's just one. But how many, have been, how many have used this device since? The cross is meaningless unless Jesus had risen and ascended. 
And that's the very center of what Paul says, because he is the one in which the church is reconciled. He is the one who is the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. He is, he is, he is. So God is at the head of the church. The third thing that we see, so we've seen the purpose of creation, it's all about him. We've seen God is at the head of the church. It's all about Christ at the head. Third thing that we see is that he is our saviour. Look at what it says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Love, I, I love that the Bible just says this is, this is what it is. This is where it is. We are enemies of God because of our minds and our behaviors. In other words, our, is there anything more to us than our minds and our behaviors? I think that's what Paul is driving at. You know, we could say, we, well, you, you might have an evil mind, but if you don't kind of work it out, <laughs> then maybe, maybe it's not quite that bad. Or maybe you do some bad things, but you, your mind and your, your ideas and your motives are in a good place. And Paul says, look, both of those things, the way we think and what we do, everything about us is enemies of God. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It is just, do you know what? I, eight verses, we could spend months unpacking the ideas behind this, but it is really, really simple in one level. He says, look, Jesus on a cross becomes the way in which you become holy. That is amazing news. That's why it's described as good news, gospel, because you are alienated, but there's a way in which you might be de-alienated, reconciled. And it's not through you, it's through Jesus, His physical body. So he says three things. You were once alienated, and now you're reconciled. Do you know what? We need to remember that sometimes, sometimes the Bible tells us things that we don't feel. There's loads of times when I don't feel reconciled to God. This says that I am reconciled. I feel alienated, but I'm actually reconciled. Secondly, his defaced, broken body creates holy people who were without blemish. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. It happens on the cross. Something beautiful becomes something horrific and terrible, not just physically, but in the sight of God, he becomes the unholy blemished one so that those who receive him might become holy and unblemished. It's a remarkable idea. This, this kind of 
redemptive idea is so incredible. Well, we know that it is written into all sorts of storylines ever since. Because this is so astounding that God would do that. A tyrant God wouldn't do that. But this God does. And therefore, He says to you, continue in your faith. Remain in your faith. Hold on to this good news. If you continue in your faith, He says, that's what qualifies whether those things exist in your life and my life. If you continue in your faith and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. That's what makes us participants in this. Because right now we can say that good news has been proclaimed. But I think there's another way in which we might be participants. I want to imagine this letter arriving in Colossae. And there's a church that's gathered, or there's a group of people who are gathered there. And the word goes round, we've had a letter from Paul. He's in prison. Maybe some of them didn't even know he was in prison. Maybe they did. But a letter has arrived. And we get together a bit like this, and somebody stands up at the front, and they read this letter. You know, we, we think that the Bible is some sort of academic theology book. <laughs> this letter was sent so it could be read to a group of people like you and me. Somebody stood up at the front, and as these words are being read, the impact for everybody would be varied. Some people would be subdued because they realize that they've become a little bit arrogant in their faith and they're reminded that it's everything about Jesus. Others would be hugely encouraged because they realize, I know I keep on failing, but it's all about Jesus. And then I suspect there would be others who would realize that they are just observers of this Jesus up to now. They've never actually become participants. They're not able to say that I am and I believe that I am holy in His sight and without blemish. And they have a deep sense that I am actually still unholy and blemished because I've never truly believed. Something which happened actually when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus just 20 years ago had become an impact on that Colossian church. 20 years ago. Year 2000. There or thereabouts. Do you remember it? Y2K. Planes were going to fall out the sky. Our cash machines that were invented in the 1960s wouldn't give us money anymore. All sorts of terrible things were going to happen at Y2K. And on January the 2nd, we realized that the world was just still carrying on. But we remember that distinctly, don't we? That's 
how long ago it was when these events happened for the Colossian church. And since then, for the past 2,000 years, people have been coming to terms with this message. And I pray that every one of us would come to terms with this message. As we take steps forward, let us remember Jesus Christ is center. Collectively, in everything that we do, when you or I get a little bit frustrated with progress or non-progress, or colors or non-color. Can you have a non-color? Somebody clever, remind me, tell me whether you can have a non-color later. When we find that the things are not quite working out, let's just subdue that, because the big thing is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus Christ is supreme. And if you are thinking and looking and observing, let me say to you tonight, unless you realize this, you will never find your true identity and purpose. You will continue to have that nagging sense that there must be something more.